This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Hey folks, welcome back. You're in the workplace. I'm Peter Capelli, Professor of Management here at the Wharton School. And with me is my colleague Yvonne Berenke, who's also Professor of Management, Professor of Business Economics here. In this half hour of the show, we're going to talk about some new results uh, from a survey of CEOs and C-suite executives. Now, why do we care what they think? Well, they're in charge of a whole bunch of stuff, and uh, the way they're thinking affects the decisions they're making, and the decisions they make uh, affect all of us. So that's why it's important to know this. It's a great pleasure to have back with us Dr. Rebecca Ray, who's the Executive Vice President at the conference board in charge of knowledge organization, among other stuff. And she's going to tell us a little about the survey they've done. The results are just out. Rebecca, welcome. Peter, what a distinct pleasure to be with you again. Thank you for the opportunity to opine a little bit here. Well, how nice you're invited back again already. (laughs) (laughs) So, Rebecca, tell me about the survey. Tell us about the C-suite survey. This is something you do routinely, right? Yes, that's right. We've been doing uh, this a particular stream of research since about 1999 or so. And um, for many years, it was focused solely on the CEO. And this year, we decided to switch it up a little bit. We thought we might have some more robust conversations if we broadened the opportunity to opine uh, to other C-suite leaders. And uh, so this report is is really around the C-suite, although there is certainly a, a large emphasis on what CEOs think. But we were able to kind of contrast what other C-suite leaders think, and, and quite often they are very much in alignment. Okay. Uh, but there are some some uh, differences that perhaps we'll, we'll get to as we as we chat a bit. Right. Before we get to the uh, the results this year, what have the what have the trends been that you've seen over time since you've been doing this for 20, almost 20 years now? Uh, what are the yes. trends in terms of what the CEOs have been saying over time? Different stuff, well, I, I guess, right? Uh, different things, but there are, I think, a few trends. And I would say that uh, I've only been sort of swinging at the fence here for about six or seven years of this report. But for a long time, I think there was a, a great, much greater emphasis on the kinds of things that CEOs may have felt that was in, within their purview. So the things that they could control, oh. you know, uh, operational costs and oh. perhaps the emphasis on marketing or okay. the emphasis on growing market share. And in the last, I would say, seven, eight years since I've been um, working with this, and, and certainly there are many hands in this report, and I'm privileged to partner with Chuck Mitchell, uh, who is our head of quality, and, and also our chief economist, Bart Van Ark. Um, but I think there's been a distinct rise in the emphasis on uh, talent and certainly having the right leaders to, to lead a digital transformation in okay. the last couple of years. We've also seen uh, sort of CEOs get uh, that innovation is something that all employees should be thinking about. In, in the early years, I would say maybe five, six years ago, uh, high on their list of strategies around driving innovation was to have some special moments for those few who were tapped, the rare, the few, the brilliant, uh, to drive innovation. And now you see, as a matter of course, uh, developing innovation skills for all employees is a much, much higher consistent theme. Yeah. Uh, we also see mm-hmm. a lot around culture. Uh, that has been a real rise in the last couple of years, mm-hmm. whether that's a culture of accountability, a culture of engagement, a speak-up culture. You know, it's so clear to us that culture plays such a huge role in, in all of this, and I think CEOs and, and C-suite leaders really have gotten that message. Okay, yeah, so growing awareness of 
people sorts of issues, which is a uh, is a good thing. Let me one more before we get to the blockbuster results here. And while we're <laughs> while we're waiting, let's just see if we can get people to guess what the number one response is. And we'll say it's across the board, across CEOs, CFOs, and CH, Chief Human Resource Officers. Uh, here's our number if you want to guess. one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. And if you're listening on Thursday, we are live, so you'll get through to us. So, Rebecca, CEOs, or let me say CFOs, Chief Financial Officer, or as some people call them, the Chief Fun Officer, because they're known as really the fun department in uh, corporations. I mean that completely sarcastically, and the chief human resource officers. Um, what are the differences look like there? Are they as obvious as you would think that the CFOs are only concerned about costs and the human resource people are only concerned about people? Is that is that what you see in the results, you think? No. I, you know, I, I, I'm not sure I would take that away from, from what we uh, from what we determined in the study. In fact, quite often the CFO can be counted on uh, to talk a little bit about uh, the importance of talent. Okay. And at, often when we ask questions like, uh, how prepared is your organization for digital transformation? Sometimes the CEO is a little bit more optimistic about some of those things. Oh, okay. The CFOs um, and CHROs are sometimes uh, more aligned than you might otherwise think. Okay. Uh, we sometimes ask questions around whether or not there was a an agile com- uh, an agile uh, team culture, and um, I would say that the CFOs and CHROs are, are more uh, aligned. The okay. CFOs are a little bit more concerned about um, some of the things than are um, than CEOs. For example, CEOs are not as worried about a recession uh, huh? as they have been huh. in the past. Yeah. Okay. But the CFOs, not that they're worried, but they're more cautious. Right. About it, I think. Right. As you, so there as are you some expect. distinct differences. Right. That's their job. So let's get to the big story here. Uh, what's the number one concern, the number one hot-button issue of CFOs, CFOs, and Chief Human Resource Officers? They all agree on this one. What is it? Well, can I just ask if any of your listeners uh, had the correct answer for a prize? Uh, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's okay, got then. the right answer. So you can but let's close the polling yeah. then. Yeah, close All the right. polling, yeah. <laughs> All right. So so across the board, CEOs, CFOs, CHROs, and in fact when we looked at them in the aggregate across this entire C suite, which also included, you know, some folks like chief marketing officers or oh. chief technology officers, uh, chief communication officers, that that kind of thing. Uh, it was the failure to attract and retain top talent. Okay. Hmm. Okay. That's that's it's Literally. great. It's great for talent, and and I think Yvonne, because we're in the human capital group at Ward, and I think we are copying this directly to the dean's office, uh, so that they well, can... companies should turn a challenge into an opportunity. Okay. Well, why are they so worn out <laughs> with attracting and retaining high talent? Why are they so concerned about this? Yeah, oh, um, well, they might go. <laughs> well, yeah, why don't they enjoy well, each other that. more? Let's let's ask that. Why? And why do you... don't they offer more money? If this is a problem, this is what gets me with companies. Uh-huh. If they if they find it so hard to attract people, they just need to just offer them more money. So yeah. it's not rocket science, well, uh, uh, but they don't. Rebecca, let's uh, drill on that a little bit, this number one concern. Uh, is it a concern that, that you think they're facing right now, or is it a fear that they're not going to be able to attract these folks or retain them? I think that they realize the future has arrived. Okay. So right. it's both a, a, a current and a, and a long-term concern. Okay. And, and in fact, when you, uh, when you look at some of the data, 
uh, clearly uh, attracting and retaining t- uh, talent has been uh, toward the top in the last few years of the hot button issues. Right. And usually the second or third one each year has been around uh, developing the next generation of leaders. In right. fact, if you look at this year's responses, it's among the top five. So right. clearly, you know, talent's a challenge. I think when you when you look at some of the strategies in human capital and you compare the responses of CEOs and CHROs, okay. uh, there's a, a greater emphasis among CHROs on improving the corporate brand and employee value propositions okay. to attract and retain. Okay. And that's a top five uh, response from CHROs, but not CEOs. It's still in their top ten, but it's not as high a priority. Okay. And yet, when you ask both groups, if they're increasing their efforts to retain top talent, uh, both groups, CEOs, number ten, CHROs, is number 14. It seems to me that if you're concerned about retaining talent, it's, it's one thing to improve the corporate brand and value proposition, which is exactly something that you should do, yep. but you also make you have to make sure that you don't lose what you have. Otherwise, right. it's just a revolving door. Right. But but why is this uh, so acute now? Is this perhaps just a reflection that this is a very, very healthy labor market at the moment where, empl- um, you know, talent, especially high talent, have just a lot of opportunities to go elsewhere? And is this just a, just a consequence of a healthy labor market? Meaning, if the economy should start to soften soon, maybe this concern will dissipate. What do you think? I, I think it's a combination of many things. It, certainly there's a, a tightening uh, labor market, and some of the economists at the, at the conference board have kind of mapped that out in a very um, lovely way. Uh, but I think a lot of it is finding the right skills. So it isn't simply mm. you know numbers of people. Mm-hmm. It's those with the with the opportunity to be agile, to be strategic, to be thoughtful, to be innovative, to, to be able to be comfortable in this rapidly changing world. Because if you look at the hot button issues, one of the other top challenges is around disruptive technology and what that's going to do to existing business models. That's the second one across the board. So when you have that kind of volatility and you know that uh, the challenges that you're going to be presented with probably aren't even clear to you yet, you yep. just know that they're coming. Yep. You need an agile workforce that can think on its feet, can pivot, can respond quickly to, you know, changing market conditions or customer preferences or Mm -hmm. disruptive technologies. And that's the kind of worker that you need. And that's tough to come by, at least in the numbers, which, you know, uh, companies particularly need to find them. Right. So let's let's push on that just a little bit and uh, just tell people also the number two reason across the board, everybody agrees this hot button issue rather is created these new business models uh, because of disruptive technologies. And mainly they're talking about uh, IT issues there. Now, after that, you got a couple of competitive ones. Developing new leaders is, uh, I think, in the number five posi- position. Number right? five, pretty number much five. across the board. Yeah, and there's some others after that we'll talk about uh, in right. just a second. Um, but do you get the sense that, uh, particularly with the new technologies, that um, companies feel a great comfort in trying to find somebody who has already done this someplace else? Uh, I know when I talk to executive search guys, they they say the hottest uh, people, the candidates everybody wants, is somebody who in a traditional company has helped them uh, move toward the Internet of Things, you know, that is using uh, the Internet as a way to try to sell more of their traditional stuff or find new opportunities for it. Do you think that, that partly what's going on here is 
is is companies maybe just don't want to take a risk or mitigate the risk. They believe that somebody who's done it already is really necessary in order to do it themselves. Well, you know, it is very tempting to want to uh, tap someone who has um, ridden this pony once before. I think the challenge is it's not just technology in the way that we think about it in IT. It's the disruptive nature of technology, which impacts every aspect of the business. So the sheer number of changes that an organization has to address requires people who in their own disciplines are comfortable with the the impact of digitalization. But to your point specifically about, you know, tapping someone who's done this before, that's great. Uh, And we all know that the best predictor of future success is past success. But having said that, the disruptive things that are coming are not necessarily the kinds of things that you have dealt with in the past. They may be somewhat related or they may be, you know, somewhat familiar. But I do think that unless someone has the opportunity to think strategically, to be comfortable with ambiguity, uh, you know, those are the kinds of digital leader qualities that are going to be necessary. And that may or may not be resident in someone who has done this perhaps in the past, but it may not look exactly the same. Okay, one more question on this. The the survey was international, right? It wasn't just a That's U.S. Right. survey, right? Did you mm-hmm. see differences across the, I mean, noticeable differences across parts of the world in this response as number one concern around talent issues? Or was yeah, it pretty there, pretty consistent there, across the, bo- across there the world? There were some. I, I would say it's more consistent than not. Okay. Um, but And I think that speaks to a couple of things. One, we're also interconnected now. And secondly, it's uh, almost impossible to escape what happens in one part of the world and think that it won't touch you if you simply are here in the United States or okay. vice versa. Okay. And and I think that the acknowledgement that, that we are so interconnected is what drives a lot of that. Okay. There's one other dimension of the survey I wanted to, to touch upon, which is which struck my eye. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion and debate um, on the different components of the economies and, and how they shape inequality, um, social mobility, disparity. You've seen some differences in how important these these uh, how, how important inequality should be or income inequality should should be a matter of concern for a company. Um, but perhaps more broadly, what, do you think uh, so? Why is there a difference? So maybe you can explain the results here. And although and it's rated pretty highly across is, across the board, it's it a is, big concern. Right? It is a big concern. But sh- why should uh, companies uh, care about income inequality? Or why do sure. they? Or why do they? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's much higher among CHROs, but to Peter's huh. comment, huh. It, it is a top 10 concern when you blend them all together. Yeah. Okay. I, I do think that in recent years, you know, we've, we've seen explosive growth in many parts of the world, which has lift, lifted millions of people out of abject poverty. Yeah. But, you know, the economic benefits are not um, equally distributed, shall we say. And I think that companies are struggling with how to address that. And there's certainly the larger social backdrop. You now have a generation of millennials uh, and Gen Z just now coming into the workplace who are very conscious about how companies are perceived, their brand, where they, where they place their um, emphasis, what their values are, and how much they walk the talk. And this is a generation that will choose a company to work for based on a variety of of factors, one of which is their social responsibility. 
And so if, if they see that this is an industry or an organization that is particularly uh, good about gender parity, about um, you know, income equality and a variety of other social issues, th- those are the kinds of uh, companies that they're going to want to work with, the products they're going to want to buy, the, the things that they're going to be loyal to. And so I think companies understand that there is a sort of a social movement to much of this that will force them to think a little differently mm-hmm. about some of the choices that they make. And, it, and, I, and I don't mean to say that they wouldn't necessarily make good choices without that social pressure, but I think in this age of, of incredible transparency, there's really nowhere for an organization to hide if they can't have a coherent, transparent plan that they can articulate uh, to current employees and to stakeholders and to mm. prospects and, and anyone else who looks at that organization. Okay. Let's switch a little bit here and and turn to the human capital strategies uh, around the world. That is what the CEOs say they want around human capital issues. I was really surprised mm-hmm. here. Around the world, the number one priority seems to be, with the exception of Asia, but globally it's number one, the number one issue seems to be communication, right? Was that a surprising one to you? It does surprise me. Um, What do you think? Well, it actually was uh, a top one last year. Wasn't it? Okay. And I think a lot of CEOs understand the need to have a culture where people at any level of the organization feel comfortable stepping up uh, and speaking up and feel as though they can do that without fear of retribution. And we can look at any one of a number of headlines we've had in recent months about the impact of not having a speak-up culture and what happens. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, I don't want to go too far afield from from the report, but I think so much of what we've seen in the headlines is, and these, these are examples of organizational culture failure, because I would argue that most all of those companies have policies and procedures that prohibit certain types of behaviors in the workplace. Right. Um, have an ombudsman, they have a a hotline, they have a variety of ways for people to speak up. And yet, even given those opportunities, many people don't. And that's because the organization has failed the leaders of that organization, because I would argue that culture is the net result of what leaders do Mm -hmm, or fail to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, that That has coalesced into a situation where people do not trust, do not feel comfortable, fear retribution. And, and let's be candid, you know, we can have another podcast, I hope, in the not-too-distant future about, you know, imbalances of power and what that does to uh, to people in the workplace. And so I think CEOs understand that they're never going to have the opportunity to be close to the customers, deliver the right kinds of products, build market share, retain great employees, uh, and, and satisfy their stakeholders if they don't have people willing to tell them the truth. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I think that's where that comes from. And I see it's even more important, slightly more important, in Europe where it's the number two issue. The U.S., it's a number three. Here's my last observation on those results uh, for priorities. Uh, The number five issue globally is performance management to improve it. It is number two in Asia. It is number 10 in the U.S. They're much more concerned about it in Asia than they are in the U.S. Does that one surprise you? It does surprise me a little bit. Uh, Well, you know, when you... you, uh have a chance to to chat with some of the folks who are responsible for this in Asia. I think one of the concerns is is uh, continuing the increase in productivity. Yeah. You know, engagement tends to be lower, and we know the, the correlation between higher levels of engagement and productivity, generally speaking. And I think in Asia there's a realization that 
uh, additional productivity is necessary and mm-hmm. will only come from from two things, trying to raise engagement. They're just sort of wrapping their heads around employee uh, engagement, yeah, whereas the United States has sort of been at it for a while. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. that makes sense. And they're also looking to articulate performance and then hold people accountable. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where that comes from. Yeah, new idea for them. I've been used to a lot of discipline in the workplace and hard work before. A new generation there, for sure, they've got a different cohort of people grown up in very different circumstances. Rebecca, thanks very much for being with us. Rebecca Ray is the, is the Executive Vice President of the Conference Board. This is the new survey on CEO views and values. We're going to take a break, and we're going to come just back in a second and talk about debt collectors. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 